Heavenly Father, there's lots of sermons here, but we want to hear you. So that's our cry, Lord. We want at the end of it to have heard you, please. Amen. Colin's going to put a map up there, which will stay put for a while, just so you can see uh, the areas that we're talking about. Nicknames don't normally... You don't normally make up your own nickname. Has anybody here made up his own, her own nickname? See, when I was at school, there was a guy called Longman sat behind me. Now, before I tell this story, I don't blame Longman because if I'd have had a chance, I'd have done the same to him, okay? But in those days, my parents ruled my haircut, and I hated the short back and sides because my ears stick out. I was also in need of national health glasses, and it was before John Lennon made little round glasses popular. And in those days, they were anything but popular. And not only did you not have nice things that hopefully just rest on the ears, you had round things which kind of clung to them. Okay. Which didn't help with short back and side and big ears. Now, Longman was not known for his ability at languages. But as we sat in French and he sat in the desk behind me, he discovered that the French word for monkey is singe. And he cackled and he poked me in the back. And at the top of his voice, and it's spelt singe, so he can't pronounce French. She so said, ah, singe, singe, singe. Poke, poke, poke. That became my nickname. So I was known throughout school as Singe. Fortunately, because he couldn't pronounce French, nobody necessarily realised it was monkey. They just thought it was haircut. (laughs) (laughs) But that was bad enough. Um, And I didn't really like it until the day I took it on myself. And because I did O-level art... I used to sign my pictures Singe, and it kind of gave it something and took the sting out of it. But it's not a nickname I would ever have given to myself. Now I go to Romania, as some of you know, and Kostel Tomaszowski is the colleague that I help out, and at one time I went there, and he was planting a church in a city, a town called Berlud, and he is straight down the line old-fashioned evangelicalist Costell. He goes out and tells people to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that particular region of Romania, there are many hundreds, if not thousands, who go to church who have never repented because their church just relies upon the traditions. And so long as you maintain the traditions, don't worry, you'll go to heaven. So when Costell and his small group started telling people to repent, it really got up people's noses. And so shortly before I arrived, there was a raging front-page condemnation in the local newspaper of Costell and his little group called Repenters. That's what they became known as through the news media. The repenters. (laughs) I don't want to have anything to do with the repenters. Of course, he didn't object to the name, but it's not a name he chose for himself. 
I tried to choose the name Christian for myself after I became a Christian. I told my dad I'd become a Christian. And my dad, having known me for 25 years, my ups and downs, my fads and phases, my yeses and noes, said to me, don't you tell me you're a Christian. I'll tell you if you're a Christian. In a few years' time. Well, I really didn't like that. But afterwards I thought he had a measure of wisdom. Because he knew me, you see. Um, and five years later, when he was kind enough to let me learn to drive in his car and he couldn't get out because I was driving and we were moving, I said to him, Dad, do you remember you said you'd tell me if I'm a Christian or not? Am I? And rather grudgingly, he said, you've met God. At long last, he gave me the name. Are you with me? Now, in Antioch, they were first called Christians. And they were first called Christians, Christians, by the people who were not the Christians. So, in different ways, I just want to examine that this morning. Not forensically, but aspects of it. Okay. What was it about their life, their lifestyle, that other people called them Christians? And it's a challenge to me because would people knowing me call me a Christian? You see? My father wanted to wait and see. However, there's some background, and I'm going to give you a bit of historical background, which probably isn't necessary. Is this too loud? It's okay. Good. 300 years before Christ, there was the great Alexander the Great, and he went from Macedonia and he conquered um, Greece, and eventually, after many battles, and uh, he was supposed to be a brilliant military commander, he wasn't always a brilliant person, I have to say, but eventually um, they went from Macedonia and right across, right or east across the map as far as India and down even into Libya. And uh, one of the advantages of that subsequently was that he tried to Hellenize that whole empire, turn it into Greek culture. So that when it came, actually, to spreading the good news of Jesus 300 years later, they now had a new empire, a Roman empire, with Latin across the empire as its language of legality. And it had Greek as its lingua franca that could be spoken everywhere. So that Thomas, one of the apostles, we know ended up in India but all the way he could preach the good news in Greek. The Romans also, when they overcame uh, the empire of Alexander, as we know, they were great road builders. They facilitated travel in a way that no conqueror before them had had. So that in, when we look back over things, we have to marvel 
sometimes at things we never expected to marvel at, how God has used things for the spread of good news. The Greek language and the Roman travel system really assisted um, the passage of the gospel from one place to another. Now, also, I want to go back to the beginning of Acts of the Apostles, where we find Jesus risen from the dead. Jesus is risen, remember. Jesus is risen, remember. (coughs) Speaking to the apostles and telling him, well, opening their eyes to understand Scripture, these things were written in all the Scriptures. And it was written um, that this good news of the Saviour should be preached with repentance to all the peoples, not the nations, but to the peoples is the Greek. To all peoples, beginning at Jerusalem and going out, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Now then, if you take Acts of the Apostles, as I'm sure Marky pointed out at the beginning of our series, that Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, becomes a template for the story that he's telling. Because Luke, in Acts of the Apostles, is telling the story of how that vision of Christ was being fulfilled. So, in the early days, we hear of these things, this extraordinary experience of the coming of the Spirit and the growth of the church in Jerusalem. And then comes the persecution, which is a result of Stephen, you remember, and, 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 and people being hounded by this young academic called Saul from a place called Tarsus, which is at the top of the map, you can see. And, uh, and people spread out, and so then you find that Philip and others went into Samaria. And then you get this Peter on his pastoral tour of Christian communities spread out around the area, ends up on the coast and gets a call to go to Caesarea to see a Roman chap, a centurion called Cornelius. Now, none of these things would have been foreseen when those apostles, those disciples first sat in their upper room. They would not have seen themselves sitting in the Italian's house. It was against all their Jewish understanding and tradition. All the way through, God is breaking their boundaries, taking them into hard places they never expected to be. But what Luke is telling is the story of how the gospel through many difficulties and misunderstandings and mindset transformations within the disciples, went from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and began to the ends of the earth. And then we've got this extraordinary thing where Saul becomes converted. He's the the number one chief adversary of the church. And God, this extraordinary almost looking back on it, comic wisdom, chooses this man to be apostle to the Gentiles. 
So it's all unfolding. God's purpose we're talking about. We're talking about God's purpose unfolding. It's beginning to unfold, but there are peoples worldwide that he is concerned about. Now then, coming back, for those of you on the podcast, I've got a map up on the screen. It's a map of the eastern Mediterranean. You can get out your Bible map and have a look at it. See, make sure you've got a map that includes at the bottom a bit of Libya and goes up and uh, it's got Crete and Cyprus and stuff on it and Turkey. But um, did you notice in our reading that those who were scattered went to Phoenicia, that would be the coastline that we now call Palestine, okay, and they went up to Antioch, and Antioch is at the top end of the eastern Mediterranean, and just above it to the left is Tarsus in um, modern-day Turkey. So they went up there. Now, previously, people had gone speaking only to Jews. But these guys, eventually, we're told people from Cyprus and from Cyrene in Libya went up to Antioch and they spoke to the Greeks. Now, why on earth would that be? Well, back to Alexander, sorry. Under Alexander, Cyrene had a big school of Greek philosophy. It was one of the big Greek culture towns at the top of Africa that had been Hellenized. So these guys that went up to Antioch may have been Jews, but the Cyrenians amongst them were people who'd lived in a culture steeped with the old Greek culture as well. They were cross-cultural in their very personal makeup. But so were the Cypriots. Because when Alexander went about conquering, the Cypriots actually handed their navies over to Alexander to help him defeat the Persians. And because of that, Alexander gave them special independence, although they came under the rule of his empire. So, those Cypriots that went up to Antioch might have been Jews, but they lived in a very Greek background and culture. It was within themselves. And when they went into Antioch, they found another place which, because it's between the, on the trade routes from east to west, was such an important place that it was definitely a place that was, got not, was going to be Hellenized. It had to be. So, you see, what you've got is, you've got horses for courses, basically. You've got people steeped in both a Jewish and a Greek culture who've accepted Christ as their Messiah. And when they go up to Antioch, their heart's desire is to speak to people that just like them, the Greeks all around them. And it wasn't the apostles that did this. It was these ordinary Christians who'd been turfed out originally because of the persecution which happened under Stephen. Horses for courses. 
The only acts of the apostles that we find at the start of this passage of Scripture, or in this passage of Scripture, is that they send Barnabas to check it out. Now, why on earth would they send Barnabas to check it out? Well, look back in Acts. He was a Cypriot. He also understood the mix of cultures. And he was a good man. And he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And as well as a Cypriot, he was a Levite. So he could go up there and check out what was really going on there. And we're told that when he saw it, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. He was chuffed to bits. Absolutely thrilled with what God was doing. So what was happening here? The good news of Jesus had somehow left the specific domain of Jewishness, can I put it that way, and been preached to Greeks entering a culture in a new kind of way as part of God's fantastic plan that the peoples of the nations should know the Messiah. There is one other apostolic thing that happens in that chapter, I ought to say, that uh, Barnabas goes up to Tarsus and collects Paul. Isn't it ironic that the people that ran away from Saul were nearer to him in Antioch when they got there than they would have been if they'd have stayed in Jerusalem? (laughs) And isn't it ironic too that the man who was the persecutor became the one who for a year with Barnabas taught in that place because, of course, Tarsus, like Antioch, like Cyprus, like Cyrene, had a rich Greek culture locked into it. And Paul understood both the Jewish scriptures, and he was a true Jew, but he understood the cross-culture because he'd grown up there. So, I suppose that was an act of of an apostle because he became known as the apostle to the Gentiles. But apart from the rest of it, it was ordinary guys like you. In their home, in the environment in which they felt at home, being what they were amongst people they felt at home with. Are you hearing me? So, are we saying then that God didn't tell the apostles to go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation? Well, when the persecution came along, they stayed in Jerusalem. We honour, we honour their bravery to do that. Other people were spun out of Jerusalem under that persecution. But we do know later that they moved out from there. I'm not sure where they all went. All of them, with the, possible ex- with the exception of James, who was, who was killed by Herod, 
and one of the Herods, and John, whom we believe lived to a ripe old age, although he went through persecution. All the others, we believe, tradition tells us, were murdered for their faith, executed in different places in the world. Thomas, for instance, in India. So we know that they did spread out. They did take that word. But the specific instruction which Jesus gave to those first apostles was that the good news should go to the peoples, but that they themselves were to make disciples and to teach them everything that he had taught them. Find it at the end of the Acts, uh, of um, Matthew's Gospel. Go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the one name, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So that's what the apostles did. They handed on to the disciples everything that Jesus had passed down to them. Now think about that. The apostles aren't around anymore. But if the church is being faithful, and if its leaders and teachers will be faithful, there will be passed down to every disciple all that Jesus himself taught his little group of people. And so there is lodged within you the knowledge and the understanding to make him known because it's passed on, isn't it? It's passed on. So part of our dream which we passed on to you for this church, which we're trusting God in you to make a reality, is that we become a people who are passionate proclaiming Jesus in all of life. But that's exactly what we see these Greek Jews doing as they go up to Antioch and begin to preach to people who are very much like themselves. Nobody knows, your, nobody knows your local culture like you do or your business culture like you do or your families, wider families like you do. Where do you feel comfortable? What bunch of people other than Christians do you feel comfortable amongst? Because you share a cultural a personal background and, and view of life, which in your case has become, has been challenged by the gospel of Jesus and is being cleansed and transformed of the things which are worldly. But you still share that culture, don't you? So where do you feel at home? Ministers of Jesus Christ. Of course, there is something else about these guys. Wherever you read through the Acts of the Apostles, 
they were filled with the Holy Spirit. There was an occasion in my life when I was, I believe, filled with the Holy Spirit in an extraordinary way. I've been praying, God, baptize me with the Holy Spirit. And God granted this in an extraordinary way. I don't know that I wasn't before, but I do know that I knew that I was afterwards. Do you see what I mean? And these people were filled with the Holy Spirit. And all the way through this passage, when we read this passage, we sense that the hand of God was with them. When Barnabas saw the evidence of the grace of God. We understand that these people went out in the power of God's spirit. So although they went talking about Jesus, they went out in the power of his spirit. And we have the sense all the way through the Acts that God is at work. God is doing the stuff. And that's a real relief, isn't it? To me, that's a relief that if only I will be, allow God to fill me with the spirit, I can preach, and I might not be a brilliant preacher, but God can do stuff. If it's real, God can do stuff. You see, and if it's real with you, God can do stuff. He can astonish you, because God can do stuff. But there's something else about these people. They were definitely passionate about Jesus, weren't they? You can sense the passion, although we don't hear their particular words, we know they went preaching or, or good newsing Jesus is the way the Greek puts it. Good newsing Jesus, where they went. But you see, these people had suffered severe persecution back in Jerusalem. And we don't blame them because we'd have wanted to be with them they removed their families from the place of danger and they were scattered. But they became known as Christians. In a place like Antioch, of all places. So although they were scattered and they had suffered for their faith and gone through upheavals and um, obviously sort of they worked and gained their living in Jerusalem. So now they have to get up and uproot and not only live somewhere else, but they have to find another way of surviving in other places, of getting their bread, putting down roots and all the rest of it. They're always looking over their backs in case Saul, who was off to Damascus, comes after them. And yet they can't stop talking about Jesus and yet Jesus is the one they got into this trouble for in the first place. Because they named the name of Jesus as the Christ and as the Messiah. And so they were being scattered abroad. But Jesus was so special to them, they couldn't not talk about him. So I can imagine people in Antioch saying to them, and this is only me imagining it, of course, saying to them, well, why did you come to Antioch? Well, we, we were just... We just had to get out of Jerusalem. Well, what did you have to get out of Jerusalem for? Well, because there was this guy Saul going around and he was, he was throwing people like us into prison. Why was he throwing people like you into prison? Because we're followers of Jesus. And you still want to be a follower of Jesus after he was doing that? Can't he chase after you now? They didn't know he's up in Tarsus, but they might not have known he had changed either. Do you see what I mean? 
And aren't you scared that they might come after you and do it now? Yes, I am scared that they might come after me and do it now, but I can't stop talking about Jesus. Jesus has transformed my understanding of the world, the life of everything. Jesus has filled me with the Spirit of God. I am one with God through faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to know that as well. Don't you want to know that? Don't you want to know how when they preached repentance to me, I got down on my face before God and I said, God, I'm so, oh, I've rejected you, I've neglected you, I've, I've insulted you by my life and my style of life, my words and my actions. But Jesus, you sent Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one from ages ago, and he's actually come and he died on the cross and he died on the cross for me. I don't understand it, but you raised him from the dead to prove it. Change me. Challenge me. Change me. Fill me with this new life. And you know he did. So yeah, I'm running away from it all, from the persecution, but you'll never get me running away from Jesus. Because if they do kill me, I shall be with him. Because Jesus has conquered death. And Jesus is risen. Jesus is the Christ. The one that God promised from yonks ago. Do you get it? These people were passionate because, not just because they were filled with the Spirit, they were filled with the Spirit because initially of what God had actually done for them, with them. And now they saw him doing it through them, probably to their great astonishment. What on earth has happened to the church in England? We've had some wonderful revivals in the past. I'm not asking God for an old-fashioned revival. I don't know whether he still wants to do it that way, but perhaps he is doing it in Cumbran. I don't know. And what's happened to me in my lifetime as a Christian? I tell you, I could have been in Antioch, one of those people when I first became a Christian. I've gone through all kinds of phases of ups and downs and sometimes when you might not even have noticed I was a Christian. And my father, if he'd have come back from the dead, might have turned around and said, I'm not so sure now, son. How about you? You see, what Barnabas did was he encouraged them to be strong and firm in their faith. When he saw the evidence of the work of God, he was glad. And he encouraged them to all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. So, I want you to encourage me to remain true to the Lord with all my heart. And let me encourage you to remain true to the Lord you first believed in, who got you so excited, that got you running up and down the street just wanting to tell your friends and your neighbours all about Jesus. Let me encourage you to be true to the Lord with all your heart. They were devoted to Christ. People couldn't help but notice they were devoted to Christ. And I suspect that the arrival of Paul contributed to their nickname as well, actually. Because do you remember back when he was converted, um, he's obviously all the stuff about 
he, he's, he's obviously remembered stuff which Stephen said, and Stephen was very Jewishly theological in his talk to the Sanhedrin before they took him out and stoned him for his apparent blasphemy. This has been going round Saul's head, and when he became a Christian, when he encountered the Christ who said, no, you're not throwing people into prison, you're persecuting me. And Paul recognized that Jesus really is the Christ. Within verses, I don't know whether it's within minutes in reality, but within verses in Acts of the Apostles, we find Paul standing up in the synagogue proving that Jesus is the Christ. So that was absolutely fundamental in his understanding. And he went to Antioch, and for a year with Barnabas, they began to teach Jesus is the Christ. And we need to remember what we're talking about when we say Jesus is the Christ, because it's a neat little phrase, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, Amen. Jesus is the Christ. And the Christ is the one whom the Jews had been expecting. Christ is a Greek translation of Messiah. It means anointed one. From the very moment in the Old Testament, in the Jewish calendar and history, when Adam and Eve failed God, there was a promise they understood of the coming of the Saviour. The one who had bruised their heel would have his head crushed. A Messiah, a promised one, who would crush Satan's head and undo and reverse the fall into death and destruction and would bring pardon where there was only guilt. When Abraham was called centuries later, God said one of his descendants would be the promised one. And all the nations, all the peoples of the earth would bless themselves through him. And so they kept all these, uh, well, you've got all their sort of, uh, in the Bible, their records, family trees, haven't you? They kept their family trees, all right. And then King David came along and God said through the prophet Nathan, oh David, you want to make a name for me by building a temple, but I'm going to make a name for you. One of your descendants will be a king over Israel and his kingdom will never fail. So they understood that the messianic promise went on and on, the promise, the saviour, the one who would heal Israel, the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But of course we know that after David the kings sinned and then they went into exile and then for hundreds of years there wasn't a king so God doesn't keep his promise, does he? He just failed. It was just all a load of nonsense. Nathan got it wrong, didn't he? Until along comes Jesus and claims to be that promised one. So that even over his cross they put king of the Jews and then they kill him so of course the promise is null and void, isn't it? 
Oh, stupid people that you could ever believe such a thing. That he was the Messiah, that he went about healing and doing good and destroying the works of the devil, that he could be the one that the nations were hoping in. But God raised him from the dead and has given him a kingdom that endures forever because he's lifted up into the heavenly places. And he is the one of the seed of Abraham. And he is the one of the line of David. He is the one who is the king whose kingdom never comes to an end. And he's the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is the only one. It's why Peter in Acts, the apostle, says, there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. I'm sorry, people of the other religions. I genuinely respect so many of you for the way you act out your religions. But there is only one name given among men under heaven. I'm sorry. It wasn't my choice either. I had to submit to him. And it cost me and my vanity and my pride and my pig-headedness and my way of life when I first trusted in him. I didn't want him to be the one. But he is. And he's the Christ. And he's the one these people stood for and proclaimed and lived for, and spoke about. And because of this, in that place, they were first called Christians. Lord, we would love it if people stopped calling us Christians. He's a Christian. And start calling us Christians. Make us Christians. Amen.